Good morning. How's everyone doing? Morning. Pretty well. Sweet. I, I don't know what to expect. We had a really good first session with with our first chat together. What are we going to do today, Brian? Oh, there's a baby somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm technically making waffles at the same time. So Nice. Nice. Is this a sign of how easy it should be to develop a design system? You should be able to make waffles, take care of a child, and develop a design system at the same time. Darian <laughs> Rosenbrook, give us your insight. Oh, man. I don't know. Like, I'm taking the day off today because my kids are sick, my wife's sick. And so I, I don't know that building and taking care of family at the same time is possible. But you definitely get... Uh, some short breaks to do some things, I guess. <laughs> the waffles, Darian. We want to know about the waffles. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about their shape. Yeah, yeah um, their color. <laughs> uh, so, lightly golden brown. Uh, 100% border radius and absolutely delicious. Are, are, are we talking store-bought here or are you uh, making from scratch? I'm making from scratch. Wow. There we go. That doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't matter where the waffles come from. What matters to me as a New Englander is, are you using real maple syrup? Yes. <laughs> okay. You're excused. No matter how you make them, you can't fail them. <laughs> as a non-New Englander, I would agree with that. <laughs> Just don't expect me to pronounce it properly. I don't get the year in the syrup. Gotcha. Sweet. Um, so we're almost five five after. I, I figured uh, we could start off with some intros again, just because of uh, how new our our little group is, and then uh, we can start kind of jumping into some topics. Uh, I don't know that I saw um, questions uh, right away for us to tackle, but if anyone here who's uh, sitting and listening with us, uh, we have a hashtag developing design systems uh which y'all can take a a moment to uh tweet out questions using that hashtag and we'll take a look during this call and and try to review them and uh answer them live if if we have the opportunity to let's start off with our co-hosts which we have uh dale westbrook Corey and Chris. Uh, yeah, am I, am I just introducing myself here? Uh, Chris Holt, UX engineering manager at Microsoft and a maintainer of FastUI. Sweet. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'll go next. My name is Darian Rosework. I'm a design systems designer. Uh, so I'm Corey, a software engineer at Microsoft doing design system stuff there. Uh, I also maintain Shoelace and open source library web components. Hi, uh, I'm Westbrook, and I work at Adobe, where I lead the development of the Spectrum Web Components uh, library. Uh, outside of Adobe, I also work with a, a handful of different groups to help make the web components that we make, Spectrum Web Components, better. And that there I, uh, I chair the Web Components community group at the W3C, and I'm a core member of both the OpenWC and Modern Web uh, community projects. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Dale, and I'm a principal engineer with Alaska Airlines, uh, currently managing a couple of teams, primarily the one that is uh, building out the Oro design system for the Alaska Air Group. Awesome. 
So uh, we, we decided that there's not as much talk about design systems as we would like. So we put, put together this group of us to kind of talk about topics that have been on our mind for quite a while. Um, today's topics, while subject to float as we talk and move along, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about adoption uh, in design systems, specifically around like the interoperability between the, st- uh, the libraries that we make, as well as how do we deliver those to the people and product teams. We've had a few uh, things to think about this over the past couple of weeks, especially uh, during some of our conversations. But I'm curious if if any of y'all want to touch on on this really quickly on what specifically like was leading up to our most recent frustrations with <laughs> adoption and de- delivery to our teams. Oh, frustrations! That's such a nice way to put it. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay. So, let, I mean, let's 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 call it what it is. Um, one probably one of the most challenging things that we deal with in this space is, I would argue that there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt still around the HTML custom element space. Um, it's it's a it's a specification that has been maturing for an extremely long time. And it's only within what what do we want to say like the past three to five years is that it's it's really taken a toehold in the industry because you know all of the the major browsers are finally adopting it and and we've finally gotten rid of Internet Explorer so you know engineers have the opportunity to really kind of grab hold of this technology and run with it and surrounding us is all of these very, very popular frameworks. And, and all of these popular frameworks really do come with their own opinions on doing things. And depending on what framework you're talking about, those opinions are either rooted in, you know, how HTML is supposed to work, or it's in a space where the, the, the people who invented that framework were like, I actually don't care about how HTML works. I just need to output HTML to satisfy the browser. So however we make that HTML, we get, we'll make up all the rules ourselves. So when you're dealing with something like HTML custom elements and you're trying to use them in their, their universal nature within the scope of these other frameworks, that's where you start to run into problems because you're running into engineers at different levels um, who either see these things as an opportunity or they see these things as my tutorial didn't teach me about this. I don't understand them. I hate them and everything in between. And then probably the the most interesting argument in any scenario, regardless of framework, is, again, testing frameworks. And testing frameworks are just as opinionated as any other framework. When you have a team who is trying to deliver a product and they have a requirement that a certain level of testing has to be achieved and they're using a testing framework that it itself is not yet supporting. Well, okay, I'll put it this way. Either the the framework itself is not supporting Shadow DOM or they haven't upgraded to the version that is supporting Shadow DOM. And all of these things kind of 
create like small fissures, if you will, like tiny cracks of annoyance that build up over time. And, and then people start to draw very, very strong conclusions based on these, these tiny little bits of frustration. And um, that that's, that's where the conversation is today, I think is, is, you know, we see like all of us, you know, under the, the banner of developing design systems, we see an opportunity here to have a single deliverable that meets the specification to create a, a, a uniform and consistent output um, that everybody can take advantage of. But when the people taking advantage of it um, get caught up in these these smaller, arguably smaller, or to some people bigger issues, that's that's where the that's where the trap is, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it back to you guys, but that's that's where this conversation starts in my mind. Yeah, and I think there's like one just like important um, historical information on that. So like as when you're developing a design system, you want a lot of people to use it, uh, and like historically, you have a couple of options to make that happen. You work at a company that like tyrannically enforces a single decision on the front end you know we're all going to work in x y or z framework but only that framework or you have a requirement for a super large investment where you are actually shipping your design system in x y z and one two three framework uh or the the beautiful future of of web components which you know we have a lot of investment on the on the call today in in this this space, to wherein you can create your design system once, and consume that design system across all of these different frameworks, uh, and each of them have like a little bit different problems. The theory of building it once and not having to be dogmatic about what your consumers build in, uh, I think reduces a lot of that. But then it opens the door for this situation that that uh, that Dale has just outlined where. There is a lot of additional education and in some cases re-education to ensure that those consumers that are adopting your design system are as successful as uh, you anticipated when making a decision like we are going to build this design system and web components. Yeah, it's interesting because the the goals on each side are the same, right? Um, But they're typically not seen that way. So... You know, those of us on the call who have picked web components as a delivery mechanism, we do so because we need to be able to scale across multiple JavaScript framework implementations, for instance. Um, Similarly, right, we do that because we want it to just be able to interrupt with everyone. We want you to be able to pick and choose the tool that best works for your job. There's this odd tension, though, when somebody picks a tool that has not implemented standards correctly. Uh, And so those engineers then on a product team, for instance, start to get frustrated because they picked a tool that they thought would solve their needs. And now something isn't working, you know, and often that ends up being misplaced to, you know, the design system team, the team that's responsible for leaf nodes, um, because they're not necessarily aware, I've found at least, of some of that nuance of the implementation or the choices that were made at their framework Uh, or you know, worst case scenario, they just don't care, you know? (laughs) So uh, I think that makes it difficult because each side tends to be coming at it from the same approach, which is, hey, I want this to work seamlessly. 
And from our standpoint, I think on the design system side, we'd say, yeah, that's why we made these choices. Um, and they would say, well, it's not working for me. That's where you're fighting opinions, right? Wrong. Or, or ignorance, right? And in, in a place in need of education. Look at the mounds of advice that gets sent out now. The, the path to front end in a lot of places and it's championed, you know, whether it be on LinkedIn or Twitter or, you know, in boot camps is we're going to teach you a specific framework related to the front end so that you get a job, right? It's not, we're going to teach you about standards. We're going to teach you about how to approach these problems. Um, thoughtfully, it's, hey, we need to get you, we need to get you hired, you know, so that your money was well spent. And this specific technology is key in hiring. Well, I think sometimes it does come down to opinion for sure. I also think there's just education that continues to need to happen, uh, which makes it difficult because, you know, if you don't have, you know, an engineering team driving your design system adoption, you know, or you don't have uh, significant funding for it, then how do you scale that conversation uh, across an entire organization, for instance? 100%. Yeah. Um, is this a self-feeding issue then? So you talked the uh, boot camps and, and people getting hired are trying to learn frameworks in order to get jobs. And then product teams hire for those specific frameworks just because like it's possibly like stand, uh, I, I hate using this. Let's not say standards to use that in the industry, but like it's easy for companies to get these people because they're, being fed lots of these people. So are, are we kind of backing as an industry into um, a corner by feeding like framework level rather than standards level? When, when you look at the history of, of boot camps specifically, I mean, that is like, where did most boot camps come from? I mean, that came from an age when um, everybody was really kind of, you know, drinking all the Kool-Aid around Ruby on Rails, and there just were not enough Rails developers. So a lot of boot camps started popping up all over the place, specifically teaching people's Rails, because that's where the, that's where the jobs were, right? Um, then Angular kind of comes into it. And, and you know, there, there is that self-feeding cycle, which is interesting that if you look at the evolution of where software has been, that is where the emphasis on the education is because the way I see it, like, you know, people are moving into these companies. They, they have these, you know, either skills in, you know, rails or angular or react or whatever it is. And then they advocate for that specific framework to be used for whatever project it is that they're going to. And then they don't stay there forever. I mean, what, what, what is, what is the shelf life for an engineer in a company like three to five years? Right. And so teams quickly change. And then what's constant is the project. Right. And so now a company is like, Oh my God, we have like 17 projects all built in react and the teams are, people are leaving to go to other companies. And so we have to backfill these positions so we're telling the world we need more React engineers. So that that in itself is an is an interesting position to me, and one that um, that that one is where I think the argument is actually really strong for the concept of a design system and HTML custom elements because it at least it it breaks that that absolute bind. Because I mean, like 
you know, one, one of the one one of somebody in my leadership basically said to me one day is like, we as a company, we need to look at an opportunity to say, like, we have to be able to rebuild this entire part of our experience in less than three sprints. And in order to achieve something like that, you have to have a platform tool set. You don't you can't have a bunch of web jockeys. Right. So. So the, the, the school thing is interesting because they are 100% just responding to what the businesses think they want, what HR thinks what they want. But we, as technical leadership, we need to be looking in the future and saying like, okay, here's where we are, but here's a better place that we need to be in order to make these things less hostile and less difficult, right? Um, uh what are you saying, Chris? He he said the oh, word. Dale no, said man. the word. <laughs> so uh, bring this bring this back around to adoption, right? Given this yeah. problem, um, you know, I think that <clears throat> different folks have had different methods of doing that. Um, Dale, you mentioned React, right? Um, so there's there's one where I think that. You know, that, that team is hopefully making a change in their next major version with some significant breaking changes. I can totally understand that, that shift. Uh, but I think that's one where just given the way that, you know, that framework is implemented, it makes it more difficult, at least at, at this current time without a flag, to interrupt really well. So, um, you know, what we've done is, is based on the work of uh, the folks at Lit who put together a killer wrapper. Um, have y'all used that? Is that something that's been helpful? Um, I know that we've seen it be uh, beneficial for teams that uh, want to have more of a um, React specific API rather than trying to, you know, leverage uh, other methods of getting web components to work in React. Uh, curious of, of y'all's thoughts, but I know that you know Lit really started leading in this space with their wrapper. So interestingly, even before Lit's wrapper at Spectrum Web Components, one of the ways that we really focused on our interoperability is simplified API properties. So not using complex data structures in our in our attribute and properties API, but also leaning as heavily as we can towards the event names that are already available in the browser. So one of the things uh, that is a, that often is a big um, roadblock when consuming web components in a framework or consuming your uh, design system in a framework uh, is that the uh, sort of one directional uh, data flow of uh, properties down and events up leverages an event system that has custom names and those custom names are difficult in some cases to consume in other uh, frame in a in specific frameworks. Um, and so in Spectrum Web Components, we try really hard to make sure that our upward data communication that is done via events are done by things like change or click or what have you that are already part of the platform. And this is not something that we can do across the entirety of our, our system, but that means that 60 to 80% of our components are just consumable as as raw HTML elements, even without uh, the wrapper. Corey, I'd be I'd be interested in hearing from you about Shoelace and how you sort of architect the the eventing system and the the upward 
communication strategies there because you've got such a, even a wider use base uh, than spectrum web components. I assume you'd be working with a lot of different um, frameworks to make that possible. So I'm not sure I'm 100% on your question about events and uh, could, could you clarify what you're, what you're actually asking about that? Yeah, so one of the main need, like benefits of something like the lit wrapper uh, is that if you are communicating upward uh, through events, you don't have to rely on the on-click or on-change uh, uh, events because they, to date, do not support custom event uh, binding. So if you have on-spectrum web component change, you would have to be doing some imperative binding in something like React to, in order to get that component to work in your in the, the parent framework application. Uh, have, ha, I know that you do ship some things with the wrapper, but have, had you previously thought of any of that architecture when uh, looking to make sure that Shoelace can support a wide variety of consumers? Gotcha, I, I was looking way too deep into what you're asking. Um, so here's a plug for the uh, CEM analyzer, right? Uh, it takes all the events that I uh, put into each component and just kind of makes a mapping so that those events do end up as props in React. And even if, you, if you're using TypeScript, you can just kind of get autocomplete and all that. Everything just kind of works for it. Uh, where, that, where that doesn't really work as well is if you have, uh, if you're dealing with bubbling, right, and you want to listen higher up, that component wouldn't have it, so you'd need an imperative binding there. But at least on the components that you're interested in, you can pretty easily bind it uh, in a very React way. And I've, I've not really heard any complaints. People seem to get it. They, they tend to struggle more with um, when you need a ref for calling a method or something like that. So typically, if I have methods uh, like show and hide, you know, I'll, I'll throw a prop on there that's open. So it's just as easily accessible to a React user. That's great. And by uh, CM, can you just give a, make a little bit more information there to make sure that the everyone on the call knows what you're referencing? Yeah, we'll have to drop a link here. Um, essentially, it it's an analyzer that lets you run your, you can run your code through it and it sort of parses properties, methods. Um, you can tag things with, with uh, js.comments too. So I tag my events. Uh, any event that gets emitted from a component uh, will be picked up by the analyzer. And so it, it's, it's pretty powerful. I use it to generate docs and again, do React wrappers. I use it to generate certain things in there. Um, yeah, I, I think the best thing to do is probably just link to it and um, let people explore it. If you haven't seen it, it's a pretty cool tool. So stepping back up a level, we talked a little bit about how the the product teams may be backing themselves into corners, but I wonder if there's a difference in the terms of scaling. So uh, a lot of us on our teams have to think possibly at a different scale than some uh, product teams in the way that we're trying to build things that a lot of teams can use if we're thinking like maybe tens to hundreds of products uh, across an organization that need to use these. I wonder if there's a difference between trying to build that at that scale and getting that uh, interoperability um, and teams that maybe at a startup where they really have like one to five specific areas that need that design system to be shared, like the, the main product, maybe their internal parts uh, and their admin things versus a company like uh, Microsoft, et cetera, that has so many avenues that need development teams. Do y'all think there's uh, much of a difference between the two 
in, in terms of building off of standards? I think from a just even from a design space, are looking to address the problem of, and we'll just use good old button, button at scale, right? So what is what do all buttons for these products necessitate? For the most part, in, in my experience, you know, product designers are paid and they are held to focus and deliver for their product. And so they're not looking that level up. They're looking at, here's what I need. So I think that the tension becomes is, you know, if you don't already have a relationship where they can drive requirements up to you and you, you know, have a clear filter of what is a universal requirement or need, then you can start to run into those issues where people start to recreate or break apart or adoption gets difficult. Um, Corey and I were discussing this, you know, separately you know, the other day, but it, it comes to, you know, even how we design things. Are we designing in a way where that piece can be extensible? You know, are we teaching folks in a way when they eject and what is actually, you know, a problem for the framework versus what's a problem for the product? The, the more products you start to support, the harder this starts to get. Um, so I think there's very much a design aspect here as well, um, specifically there, that parallels kind of the technical bit, truthfully, um, which can make it complicated. Yeah, I'm actually kind of struck, you know, last week we talked, last month, I guess now, last month we talked a lot about like consuming tokens. And and I, I find that like consuming tokens really can like outlines the communication from a designer to a developer. And I think, and in some cases, what we kind of miss is in the uh, context of developing a design system is that there's a, a second layer uh, handoff between the design system as a development uh, that, that's been delivered as technology and the product. And I think uh, it kind of outlines in a way the difference that you're seeing, Darian, between a smaller and a larger team. In many cases, the developer of the product and the developer of the design system in a smaller company is going to be much closer to the same person than in the context of delivering, you know, at Microsoft or or uh, you know Amazon or Adobe scale. And so we, we really need to think about what is the what is the design token language that we as design system developers speak in when we hand uh, these these tools off to the product developers. Um, and for me, I think that's one of the main reasons that we've gone uh, with web components at, at, in our projects, because it makes it really clear what that thing is that we're handing off. And it makes it really clear where the boundaries are between one project and the next, and really clear where uh, sort of those, those um, escape hatches and extension points uh, that you're seeing, uh, Chris, are when you're looking to not just make the single page or the three pages you need to make with this button, but the 300 or maybe even 3,000 pages you're looking to make. Well, I think I think one of the things that we're kind of touching on here is the complexity in building the tools, right? Um, if you're if you're in a small team with a brand new product and and there is an initiative in the beginning there to start building a design system alongside that product, then those two things can maybe happen hand in hand. Um, I, I would argue that the product would probably end up evolving faster than the design system just based on sheer velocity and you know need to release at that stage of whatever it is that you're building. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, like challenges that I've seen is you you have an established thing, right? I mean, like Microsoft, Adobe, you know, Alaska for all all that matter. I mean, we have tens of thousands of lines of code that um, <clears throat> are delivering the current experiences. And what we're asking people to do is take a step back and not worry so much about contributing to that particular product where you had all the, the primitives available to you and you could do whatever you want. But let's devote some of that energy towards a broader type thing that may benefit you and it may benefit others. And so that's that's where I think, you know, some of the challenges kind of come in and building the stuff because you're you're changing culture you're changing hearts you're changing minds um and and you're changing processes of which more some people um are more willing to do than others and even at the large scale that i have we still rely on people uh jumping in and and contributing back because even just our our team alone can't do everything so i wonder if that might be the easiest easier way of getting people to adopt is getting people to have some bit of ownership in what they're in, in both contributing and consuming feeling like they're an active part of the design system. I would argue that is a massive double-edged sword. The Oro project, we definitely had that mindset. And, and I, and I agree that I feel that if, um, if a design system is only owned just by a single team and they take a very dictatorial position about, you know, what it is that they're delivering. And then there's a business reason where people are saying you must use the design system. Um, people will naturally resist to it. They're being forced to do something that they had no say in the matter. And, and they're going to, they're going to rebel against that. It's just going to happen. But at the same time, when you, I've, I've seen like you, you can open the door for people to contribute and they love it and they love it that they have a voice, but it's still a challenge to get them to contribute um, because they're, they're looking at things again, like I need to deliver within this space and I have a, a, a product manager who's asking me to deliver by a specific amount of time. And when I engage this other group about like, how can my idea be part of this? there may be a, a more lengthy process in that request because as we're all saying here, we're, we're not just making a button for a page. I mean, anybody can make a button for a page, but when you're making a button for 10,000 pages, like, are we really making the button that can be supported by 10,000 pages? And so then that takes a little bit more energy to really kind of, you know, say yes to that. Um, and then, when you put a button out there that's on 10,000 pages and there's a change to it, like how does that change? How does that change affect everybody? Whereas in the other scenario, like I can change my button all day long and it affects me. Nobody cares. So contribution, I would argue has to be part of the conversation, but um, the level of contribution you get, I think is going to vary from company to company, group to group. And I think it needs to be somewhat of a conversation, right? Like if, at the end of the day, to your point, if there's a top-down mandate that everybody use the system, then you know if if the system doesn't work for products, it's not going to go well. So we need to gather requirements from products as far as what they need. 
the tension becomes is what is product specific versus what belongs in the design system. And I tend to find that that tends to be a conversation <clears throat> in an educational matter, but you want to keep that door open, right? Which makes it really hard because sometimes a designer might think, oh, this is just a problem that I'm dealing with. <clears throat> but more often than not, I ask for that to be shared because, you know, if you're asking that question, what's the likelihood that somebody else at the company is dealing with the same thing? There was a really specific instance with the use of color um, that came up and uh, and they're like, oh, well, we just, we just inverted it because that was already blue, right? And I was like, yeah, but the blue instance wasn't actually actionable. And so now you're going to go and use this on your page and your actionable links are going to be black and your non-actionable links are going to be blue. Like, let's solve this. If, let's solve this problem in the system, right? Because it's going to be it's going to be problematic over time as more and more folks come on board. So there is this tension, Dale, right? Like, how do you create space where everybody is free to contribute their requirements or, you know, considerations and concerns, but not everything belongs in the system, at least at scale. If you're at a smaller place, it's quite possible that everything can do it because, you know, the breadth that you need to, you know, move to uh, is, is smaller. Uh, but from a, you know, from my experience, just working with design systems at Microsoft, it becomes really, really difficult to hoist all requirements up because then you start to run into engineering issues. So uh, it's this it's this interesting tension, I think, where it ends up being less of a direct, like, if you provide a requirement, I will fulfill it, and more of, hey, this needs to be a continual conversation between the design and engineering portion of a design system team to and, and product teams to the design system team for, hey, are we staying in scope? Are we missing things? Um, do we need to evolve? Uh, or is that a singular use case kind of for, for you all based on your requirements? So, so yeah, so the, the umbrella topic for the day is, is interoptability, adoption, integration, and um, the, the, the challenges across the board don't only just come from the big JavaScript frameworks. Right. What, what we're all really kind of speaking to is, is the, the adoption of a enterprise size or smaller um, design system is really the concept that boils down to is something that has been available to everybody. Right. You you have a company, you have teams, you have people and everybody's delivering product and there's there's been an amazing amount of freedom on how you deliver that product and you know that that's great i mean that's that's what we all want but at a at a certain point there's there's an amazing amount of challenges on how that product is being delivered the expectations of the customers um the the consistency like consistency of websites has been like the bane of the web platform since the day it was born um in the in the same thing with all other types of media the the more people that you bring in to work on something the more opinions kind of get put into there and their their personal flair on how they think something should be done and everybody wants to kind of like have their stake in the game because that's how they feel like you know that's how they get value out of what it is that they're doing and that's all 100 understandable 
but we're we're definitely at a point in the the evolution of the web the evolution of software of, of all the things where you know there always has been this like microsoft has had a style guide forever um apple has had a style guide forever and there's there's constraints and there and there's always been like these these driving guidelines on how to consistently deliver something. Um, I mean, like yeah, like this is nothing new. Like going all the way back to the first Clarity Comp back in the day. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but the the gentleman who wrote the the style guide for the NASA book. I mean, like that goes way 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 back there, where you know there was a lot of effort putting into making sure that NASA. And everything that NASA did was presented in the same way, right? So what we're talking about here is just another evolution of that idea of having that consistent deliverable. But how do we physically deliver consistency without having to be put into a situation of policing that consistency, which I think has been the historical argument? Um, so... You know, we're this group of people, of course, yet yeah, we, we've said it a, a, a thousand times, we're, we're very invested into the concept of web components and we're very dedicated to the concept of a design system. But that in itself is taking away something that people have historically been able to do themselves. And so there's there's technical challenges and there's personal challenges and and, and we're all dealing with them at different levels. So with that, I mean, I'm going to stop ranting, but I mean, I think that is really kind of the crux of the interoperable in, in, in an adoption scenario is everybody has different opinions on what they want to adopt and how they want to adopt it and how this problem should be solved. So I yeah, think somebody it, else can talk. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just like consuming that. And I think it, that comes down to this really interesting question. You know, we, we sort of framed the beginning of today's talk about, you know, difficulties of consuming uh, a design system not in the context that it's been built. So whether that's web components in a framework or a framework in another framework, there's there's definitely always gonna be issues there, but that also doesn't preclude the difficulties that come with consuming a design system, even in the context that it's been written. And it begs this interesting question of what, what are, can we do as uh, developers of design systems and designers of design systems and product managers of design systems to help make it easier for for people to adopt, even if the all of the language is the same. And and I ask this like from the context like at Adobe, we build Spectrum Web Components in Web Components, and a large number of our products that are consuming that system build their pro their application in Web Components, and yet we still have a lot of users that just have difficulty. Uh, and we we as a team are currently trying to decide, is it that our docs aren't written well enough? Is it that we have written docs, but now we need docs that are in other forms so that learners of multiple types can consume that information? Um, but the, the difficulties of you know ensuring the interoperability of a design system come even when the, the differences of the developing context and the consuming context are very small. Um, what sort of things maybe uh, are you doing at, at Microsoft, uh, Chris, to, to help ensure that no matter the context you're consuming uh, the design system in, the developers that are doing that consuming are you know, empowered to do it at the highest quality level? 
That's a great question. <laughs> so for, in addition to, I guess, being a firm maintainer of SUI, for the last couple of years, I've been working um, as kind of a spoke, helping out with some of the Fluent stuff and providing a web component instance there. Uh, but my team right now, at least specifically, is embedded within a specific organization and trying to level up and provide support there. Um, I think it can be difficult at times to to do what you're saying because some of that comes down to like culture, truthfully. Um, not just in terms of the tools that are being chosen from an engineering side, but like it's one thing to, you know, to value that quality. It's one thing to, to value not taking on technical debt, not taking on design debt. It's another to come head to head and understand that the business has to ship stuff and that you're on a clock. Um, and so to some extent, uh, you know, I find that there's a tension between being idealistic in terms of creating space for folks to leverage things, creating time for us to add and enhance and having to, you know, take in requests, provide a method for somebody to get beyond that, um, you know, and sacrifice at times um, consistency within the system because somebody just says, I, I have to, I have to ship and, you know, this design is what I'm being held to red lines wise. Um, one of the things that we do just from a design process standpoint is that um, I'm a firm believer that if you want engineers to build with the system, you should spec according to it. So instead of, you know, getting product designers to use components and add red lines, we do something where we essentially call it like blue lines, where we actually call out the control, we call it the configuration. Um, because in a lot of cases, you know, an engineer is either going to go use what they can find and do it intuitively or based on what they know, or they're just going to go build it themselves. And so being able to call out what it is, what it should be, and, you know, how it should be used, um, that helps because when we're building some of these components, right, we're baking in behavior. So we're baking in the behavior of a menu so you get an accessible menu. Um, we don't bake in the actions that that menu takes, but we want to make sure that the control has proper, you know, support for assistive tech, keyboard navigation, all, all of those things, right? Um, but what I found is that if, if you don't clearly call out, just use the system, then based on even the pressures of the business and the timelines that you can be under, folks will just, you know, go off themselves. Creating that, you know, red, what is red line versus what is blue line, at least from our standpoint, has enabled a little bit more clarity for when somebody needs to do something on top of the system versus when they're just using it outright. That is really, really interesting to, to empower your designers to be able to speak in this, this blue line language. Um, are, is that something that's sort of coming down from the design team, like at, at on high, they're establishing the, this naming, naming system and this, this attribute system, or is this coming back from the component implementation and in the form of like a designer facing documentation system? Tell me a little bit more how you're able to empower that, because that sounds really powerful. 
right now it's it's primarily been conversations over you know several years in the midst of like design meetings and having designers have you know struggles or frustrations with like craft and fit and finish issues um the team that i was on you know when i came to microsoft um it was a practice that we took there and we saw we saw quite a bit of success with it i think the the difficult thing is really that 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 aspect of you know what is a contextual application versus you know what is something where you know where we need to add an override or what is something that you know this is a baked component but the you know color is that like there's all of these variations and so for me it comes back from when i was working not in tech when i was working at you know a landscape design company and, I, and we realized that if we get the landscape architects to spec using our product then the the folks who are installing are going to use our product and I've just, I've seen that continue to work. And so it hasn't been something that's been almost dictated down, although there's a great program at Microsoft from an accessibility standpoint, where, you know, trying to drive more of accessibility into design, um, where, hey, enumerate what the role is, enumerate the patterns, enumerate those things. Uh, that also can create conflict with kind of our system, which is why we've pushed on this blue line instance. Because if somebody goes and says, hey, this is a button with a roll of button, I've seen a lot of engineers go and add a roll of button to our button, you know, um, because that's what the spec says. And so blue lines help to delineate when you're just using the system versus when you're having to make a change from it. But it's, it's something that's been more organic. Um, and, you know, given what I said in terms of, you know, scale, timelines, pressure coming down, uh, I think being able to document that is something that, you know, we've wanted to do, but we just haven't been able to. So right now, it's pretty much any time that I'm in design meetings and folks are talking about this, I try and get feedback to, hey, you know, call it what it is in the system. And that will give a clear, you know, line of understanding to an engineer that that's what they should use. The, the inverse on that from a designer's standpoint is if your design deviates from the system and you tell them to use the system, don't be surprised when there's a delta, Right. And in that case, you probably need to, from a product designer to a you know, design system designer, you'll need to have a conversation as to whether you want to handle that or modify it or change it or whether you ship it just using the system. Um, a lot of that can be uh, mitigated through good process and mitigated through good uh, QA. Do we have teams here who have um, good connections with QA teams or is that kind of falling on the product team or design system teams uh, to kind of do those checks? Well, I think the, the question in my mind with that one is, is um, what is the definition of the QA team anymore? We, we in Alaska, I mean, like, we have checks and balances and, and we have testing and we have design research. Um, we don't, we no longer support the concept of a quote unquote QA team. And this is definitely somewhere where we're, you get a lot of variance. I mean, even project to project at Adobe, we have different roles that are assigned to the the reliability engineers that are uh, engaged on a product. Um, but in particular cases where we have people that are actually sort of signing off on design, in a lot of cases, they're, they're as close to uh, onion skinning some uh, some PDF or some uh, PNG on the site as uh, as like actually checking you know pixels and uh, I think it 
sort of goes back to uh, like why why I'm so interested about this this sort of blue line process that Chris is outlining because while at Adobe we you know we speak in, our designers speak in component in the components that are the design system but they do it at the the design system level and so that bleeds into the tools that they're able to use in XD and they're able to say oh for me this was a button but then in a lot of cases the output from XD is more redline and so then the, the, the developers that are consuming their output are getting the red line. And so they're trying to meet uh, red lines off of that rather than speaking in the component language that can be translated directly to the, um, the actual web components or the actual uh, patterns that they're consuming from, from our developed design system. And then there's definitely something we're dropping here. And this is, this is really cool to hear about this because it's going to help a lot. Uh, when I bring this back to process uh, in the projects I work at in at Adobe, but that that drop of like design language as a component, and then not necessarily component library as a language, and then developers getting red lines that they can't draw back to that, and then those red lines being the thing that the develop the the QE or the reliable engineers at the end of the process look back on, and then there's so many handoffs there with where it's unclear who dropped the pixels. And that's really what happens. It gets questioned at the end. The real engineer says, look, there's not pixels here. Or look, this uh, circle is not as big as that circle. And uh, marking off how we can improve those communication points is uh, a really interesting challenge. Well, I think it's interesting that Spectrum is integrated with your site reliability engineers. That uh, that that's interesting to me. How do they do that? Because I mean, like our SREs, I mean, they rely on you know tools that give them graphs and pie charts of of where problems are arising and stuff like that. Um, so how how do you how do you work in a, a, a UI process into that? Well, sadly, it's not directly attached to the design system. As I said, like uh, an engineer will use the component language to create like an XD or in non-Adobe parlance, a Figma file. And uh, and then the output of that, that file, like the, the static reference, the pixel perfectness of that representation is what are what some of the reliability engineers are tasked to ensuring and they're bringing to bear issues where those pixels are not the same. Uh, and I think it's because they're not speaking in, in the component language. They're speaking in the static uh, representation of the page as opposed to the, the sort of blue line language that Chris is outlining here of these are the different components and this component goes here as opposed to these pixels go here, which I think is a much better way to talk because then that, that allows us to speak in the language of responsivity, that allows us to speak in the language of cross-browser support, that allows us to speak in the language of cross-device support that uh, a static image just doesn't really represent. Um, that's, that, that's interesting because like the, the things that, it, that are going through my head is like a, a geometric model right? It's testing the right thing at the right time. And, 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 and something I, I, I was alluding to before, and I kind of forgot to mention was, like, us building out these design system tools, and, and asking a larger organization to consume them, 
what we're really asking for is everybody's trust, right? And it's we as the engineers building these web components, um, we, you know, we're, we're taking the, the work very seriously. We, we pour over the design specification and ensure that the, the component that we created meets that design specification. Um, we're building features. We have unit tests for those features. We have, um, uh, that's what I'm looking for, like, re, you know, UI regression tests to ensure that, you know, we're not breaking the UI with, with uh, the addition of new work and such and so forth. And, and then we're shipping those out into the world with the anticipation that people are going to consume them and trust that we did our job. And, um, and, and that kind of brings up like another thing that, you know, I have questions about when I hear other team members who are consuming our components and then they're retesting the functionality inside that component. So it's like one, why are you testing and two, what don't you trust? Right. So the, the, the concept of QA is, is interesting to me because, right. I agree with you, you know, there's very few places that I've worked with that has like this huge QA process where somebody goes and pours over all of the individual things and looks for bugs, but we're, we're more tasked with ensuring that the things that we ship meet that specification so that somebody else shouldn't have to test it. Um, but yeah, I really want to understand better this concept of uh, red lines versus blue lines, Chris, you, you opened a, a, a can of worms there that we all want to know more about. Um, and just quick time check. It is nine Oh four. We, uh, we, we did want to say we wanted to keep this one to an hour. So um, I'm kind of curious if uh, we, we want to kick that can down the road and leave it for our next episode. What say we all? Yeah, we I should, we should definitely, we should definitely kick that can. I will say the other thing that came up here, which would be interesting to discuss in, in future episodes from both a design and a development standpoint is standards right um across the entire spectrum because i think it you know whether it's accessibility whether it's you know what is actually you know supported uh you know how how do we design based on browser matrix given the support level of different standards i think there's a lot that can be covered there in the future as well that we started to dip our toe into 100 yep so we'll we'll cap it here and i want to thank everybody uh for joining us in our space today all right l Thank you. Thanks, yeah, everyone. Thanks, guys. Episode two in the can. This is awesome. All righty. Have a great day, y'all.